Lord Jesus Christ, we're singing these Christmas songs. We're, we're in December and we're remembering you coming. And, and I just, uh, I love the Alleluia songs. I love singing Alleluia because a lot of times I don't know the words to say, uh, to lift you up, to praise you. And Alleluia is one of those words that even the angels just shouted it out. And that we can shout out just to say, it's you above us. Alleluia. Jesus, you are God. You are the glorious one. You're the creator of everything. You're the lover of mankind for some reason. You came as a, as a baby. You grew up humbly and poor. And then you suffered and you died. You humiliated yourself. You allowed yourself to be humiliated for us. And you gained us life. And I thank you so much. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with us this morning. That you would prick our hearts that you would stir us to adore Jesus Christ all the more, and that we would understand and we would respond in the proper way to what you would do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of our other partner churches in Vegas is Common Ground Vegas. They're our sending church. And uh, a couple weeks ago, months ago, I'm not sure exactly how long, but recently they did a park outreach for their community where a bunch of kids and families came to the park and they played games and things like that. And at that park outreach, there was one young girl who was telling everybody about Jesus. She was the greatest evangelist, running around telling every kid that didn't know about Jesus and even those that knew about Jesus. And, and Ben, the, the lead pastor there, said, who is that girl? He'd never seen her before. Who is she? And others were, I don't know. That Sunday, her and her family came to church. And so he went up to that family and said, I saw on, on, you know, last week when this girl was telling everybody about Jesus, who are you? <laughs> Where did she learn about Jesus? And they said, well, last Easter, you guys did an Easter egg hunt. And they do this big Easter egg hunt in the community, and they do these things called resurrection eggs, where kids can open up, you know, they learn the gospel. They learn that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again. I mean, the Easter story, the gospel. And so this little girl learned the Easter story through these resurrection eggs uh, at an Easter egg hunt. And then she, her parents said she came home and she would tell everybody that would listen about Jesus. Every, I mean, people would come over to the house, she'd tell them about Jesus. Months later, they do this outreach, she's there telling everybody about Jesus. The point is, when God moves, lives are changed. Whether it's a little girl, whether it's a 30-year-old woman, single mother, whether it's a 75-year-old man, whoever it is, when God moves, lives are changed. And when God moves big, Many lives are changed. Lots of lives are changed. We here at Common Ground are praying that God would move. Not for our glory, not for our fame, but for the sake of our community. For the sake of you and your hearts and your families and your neighbors and your friends, we're praying that God would move. Uh, our, our challenge this past week was to pray a prayer. We had one of these cards on the seat last week and said, pray this prayer each week. And I hope many of us did do that. Praying that God would move. Praying that, that Jesus says, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. That's our prayer, that more of us, more believers would go into the harvest, living for Christ and speaking for Christ, and that lives would change. Uh, one of the things that we, we really want to emphasize when we're talking about God moving is we know that we can't manipulate God to move in a mighty way. And so that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to accomplish, you know, what are the four steps you have to do, boop, 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 and then God moves mightily. That's not the way God works. God is sovereign and he will move as he sees fit. But there's some things you see in scripture and in life as well that are consistent when God does move. When revivals happen and many come to him, there's some things that are consistent every single time. And so we're trying to look at those things to see how can we be in line with what God would have us do, who God would have us be, so that should he choose to move, 
were ready. We're part of what he would do rather than being bypassed. A lot of times when God moves, when things happen, a lot of people, a lot of Christians are bypassed because they don't want to see it. They're not emphasizing it. They're not praying. They're not doing what God would have them do, and they're not ready. Uh, I listened to, I quoted this last week, but Tim Keller quoting Dr. Lloyd-Jones, and I said, I think he says something very insightful. He says, in the Bible, you build an altar, then you ask God to send down the fire. He is not going to send down the fire unless you build the altar. Seek revival by building the altar. It's up to God as to what degree he will empower it. And I think that's the right point of view, that we are putting it all in God's hands, trusting him. So if you've been a Christian very long or you've been in churches, uh, through the 80s and 90s, there was this big emphasis on church growth and all the strategies and things you do to make a church grow. And that's not all bad if Jesus is the focus. And so that's, uh, our, our emphasis really is not so much church growth, although it is, but it's all the church's growth. We want to see all the churches grow uh, as people come to know Jesus, but we want to see God move, not just churches get big, but God move. And when God moves, lives change. Now, how do we build this altar? As Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, build the altar. And he points out a few things that I think are helpful. He says, faithful preaching of the, of the gospel. When God moves, it's because the word is being taught. When God moves also, it's because people are praying. People are praying. Anytime you see a revival in history, you dig deep enough, you will find somebody or a group praying. And I've been studying revival and reading about it, and over and over again, it's, it's maybe a church, maybe it's a handful of churches, maybe it's even just one old lady, seriously, praying fervently for God to move. But revival starts with prayer. It starts with the gospel. And it starts, he says, part of building the altar is a few converts willing to step out and share their faith. People willing to go into their community and speak of Jesus. Last week, we began this series, and, and our, our emphasis last week was that when God moves, people get desperate. When God moves, people get desperate. Meaning, we look at our society, we look at the world, we look at families, and we get desperate for God. Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. And now Jesus' life has lived in and through us. And so our heart should be burdened for the lost. We should seek and save the lost. And so we get desperate. And as I've been preparing and thinking about this, just looking at society, are we desperate yet? We should be. As I was Googling and just looking at news and, and we're seeing, you know, little boys, their parents dressing them as little girls so that, you know, they're not burdened by this whole gender thing as they grow up. Um, it's, yeah, but it's not funny. It's, it's a scary thing that our kids are growing up being warped by, by what is true and what is false. We look at all, I mean, how many mass murders have there been this year? In this country, how many shootings, all the things happening politically, we need God to move. And as we look even at our schools and the things that our kids are going through, we need God to move. And so are we desperate enough yet? Have you tried hard enough to change yourself and failed that, that you're desperate for God to move? And so we saw that it's a heart of desperation that leads to the act of desperation. And the act of desperation is always prayer, always prayer prayer. And so it begins with prayer. This week, I'm going to give it away. Here's our emphasis. When God moves, lives are changed. When God moves, his spirit through his word changes lives. We're reading in Acts, and this first big movement of God was amazing. The first time the gospel is preached after Jesus rose from the dead, 3,000 people are saved, just like that. Within a few weeks, there's 5,000 men 
total that are saved, meaning men, women, and children, there's probably over 10,000 people. Within a few weeks, that's a big movement of God. So I think it's, it's helpful to look at what God did in Acts. So you can go ahead and turn there. That's where we're going to be. But these people, they didn't just fill out a card. They didn't just pray a prayer. Their lives were changed, radically changed. That's why it spread. Because it was people being saved and then being different and carrying it on. They didn't just rely on the apostles, the 12 disciples, or 11 at this point. They didn't just rely on them to do all the ministry. Their lives were changed and they took it to their community. They would say that within six months, 100,000 people around Jerusalem were saved. 100,000 people. Within 40 years, the known world had heard the gospel. One generation. Imagine that. Imagine that if God would move now, what could happen to our world, our community, if God moved? Last week, though, we also looked at this. We looked at the fun story, I think it was a fun story, of when Jesus gives his disciples the instructions at the beginning of Acts, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. But he begins, he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he leaves. He leaves, and they wanted to be with him, but he leaves emphasizing that he moves through his people, not around them. When God moves, he moves through his people, not around them. So who are his people here in Carson City? You and me. If God's going to move here, it's going to be through you and through me and through the other Christians that aren't in this room but are in the other churches right now. That's how God's going to move, through his people, not around them. So look at Acts, if you would. We're going to see God move in a mighty way. We're going to see the Holy Spirit move in a mighty way in Acts 2. This is after Jesus had given them their instructions. He had told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the power, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Then he had been lifted up into a cloud. They stood there gazing on. Gazing means just this, looking up until two angels appeared and said, go, move on, get going. Go do what he said, go back to Jerusalem. So they go to Jerusalem and the first thing they do is they go into an upper room and start praying. And we know from Acts 1 that there's about 120 disciples. So it's the 11 apostles, but then there's others as well. There, there are women and there are children. There are many involved. There's 120 and they're in this upper room and they're praying. And here's what God does. Acts 2. Now, just, just to give you a warning, we're not going to read all of Acts 2. We're going to kind of read a couple, skip over a bunch because we're going to get a highlight, try and see what, what's going on here. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Pentecost was just a feast day, meaning Jerusalem was full of people from all over. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Look at this amazing picture here of when, when the Holy Spirit moves. Now, there's a lot of debate around all of this, and we're not going to get into any of the debate. We're just going to see what the Holy Spirit did. They were there praying. God chose to move. The Holy Spirit came. Whenever you read the Old Testament and even the New Testament talking about the Holy Spirit, He's referred to as wind or fire. The, the word for spirit is even the same as wind at times. And so the emphasis of all this happening is the point is it's the spirit working. It's not that these people were awesome. It's that God was awesome and the Holy Spirit moved. And so they saw these tongues as a fire appearing and they began speaking other languages, languages they didn't know. God moved. And then they walked outside. So they're in this upper room. They all start speaking languages they don't know. They walk outside, still speaking these other languages, and a crowd forms thinking they're drunk. 
but it's only nine o'clock in the morning, so they haven't started drinking yet. So they're not drunk. I'm not saying they were going to later, but that was, that was Peter's argument. He's like, it's nine o'clock. They're not drunk yet. Um, so they go out. They're speaking these other languages. A crowd forms around, and Peter steps up to preach. And he preaches the gospel. We're not going to read all of that because it's a long sermon, but it's a beautiful picture. He gets up and he starts pointing to Jesus. He, he quotes from the Old Testament. Everybody there, for the most part, they were going to be Jews. The Jews knew the Old Testament. They accepted the Old Testament scriptures. And so Peter gets up and he quotes the Old Testament scriptures. He talks about the prophets and how they pointed to the Messiah. They pointed to what was going to happen later in the new covenant. When the Holy Spirit would be poured out, all the things were going to happen just like they were happening right there. And so Peter gets up and he speaks of Jesus. He tells them that Jesus, the Messiah, the one that they had killed just 40 days before, maybe it was 50 days before at this point, the one they had killed about 50 days before, he was the Christ. He was the Son of God and he rose from the dead. He preached the gospel. Aspects of it, they already knew. They knew they were sin. You know, they, they were sinners. They knew they had to, there was a problem there. Their, their Jewish religion taught them, God taught them that they had to, to deal with their sin with blood. That's why they had the sacrifices. So in our day and age now, the gospel, a lot of times need to, needs to include that first part, that you're a sinner. A lot of people, they don't think they're sinners or they don't understand sin. At the root though, they know there's something off. But the gospel begins with God created us good, we chose to sin, our father Adam and our mother Eve, they chose to sin, that's been passed down and then each of us has chosen to sin. It's a very rare person that if you ask them, have you ever done anything wrong, they'll say no. I've met one once, but it's rare. Most people recognize we've done something wrong. And so that's the good news that he shares. Yes, Jesus came, but he died on the cross for your sins. No longer do you have to sacrifice an animal to, to temporarily cover your sin. Now Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sin and he rose again. He said, it's this Jesus we're talking about. And here's what happens when they heard the gospel. They learned what it was to be forgiven. They, they learned that Jesus took it. And in chapter two, flip over a little bit, verse 37, we see their response. And their response in verse 37 and 38 is this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They heard God's word and something happened. Now, I want to address this, but I want to talk about something else just real quick, because there's a, when God moves, there's really two camps, or, or, or just viewing how God would move, there's two camps that we need to address, and we see this speaking in, in other languages. When we see God move in this mighty way, there's two extremes we have in the church today. The one extreme is all about the Spirit. The one, that extreme is all about uh, emotion, about seeing miracles, about seeing things happen. Uh, they want to feel and so that's one of those extremes. And maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've seen some of that uh, emotional exuberance, but not tied to anything. Um, I, I've, I've heard the stories of people saying, we were in a service and gold started falling from the sky, you know, falling from the ceiling and, and people's cavities were filled with gold. You know, and, and I researched that a little bit. And anytime that is claimed, it's debunked fairly quickly. It's, it's glitter that they shoved up in the ducts that came out when they turned it on. But people are searching for that. They're searching for an experience, an emotion. That's one side. The other side is the side that's all Bible. 
We believe the Bible. And I, I, I've heard the criticism of that is they believe in, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. Rather than, or I'm sorry, yeah, Father, Son, and Holy Bible, rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that pricked me a little bit because in general, I, I, in my life, I'd lean toward that side of it's all about the Word. And so in that camp, that far extreme side, and of course there's churches everywhere between it, you know, many of us are somewhere in there, but that far extreme side, it's all about right theology. You have to know the right thing, say the right words, being right. And so we're more right than you, so we're more spiritual than you or whatever it is. Or over here, we feel more, we're more emotional, we get to see these things. The truth is we need to be somewhere in the middle. We need to be all about the Bible and we need to be all about the Holy Spirit working. But when the Holy Spirit moves, he moves according to his word. That's the big part. When the Holy Spirit moves, and he does, we need to not be over here going, you know what, God can't do miracles. But we can't be over here going, you know what, the word is passed and now we can just do our own thing. We need to be where we're seeking God to move, we're praying for the Holy Spirit to move, but it's always in line with scripture. Always, always, always. There will never be a moment of God a moment of God without a power, there will never be a movement of God without a powerful movement of the Holy Spirit in line with Scripture. In line with Scripture. So that's what happens here. As you notice, uh, Peter, he preaches the Word. He uses the Old Testament Scripture a lot. He uses the Bible. And then he speaks to Jesus. And what he speaks as an apostle became the Word. It was written down. So he spoke the Word and people responded. And so how did they respond? Back to our verse 37. You see here, first thing, they heard and they were cut to the heart. They heard and they were cut to heart. These are interesting words. The word heard doesn't mean just hear, like I hear the chicken outside. It means they heard with perception. I hear knowing it's a chicken. You know, I hear knowing it's, it's laying an egg right now. Uh, Maybe you know that sound. But they, what they heard was they heard the gospel. They heard the message of Jesus and they understood it. They heard and understood. They understood their sinfulness. They understood God was holy and perfect. They were not and something had to be done and it was Jesus. Jesus, they understood. That's what heard means. They heard and they were cut to the heart. That's an important little phrase there, cut to the heart. Some say they were pricked. That word means pain. They were pained by what they heard and understood. Pained, and not physical pain, but a sorrow, an internal pain. They were faced with God's perfect holiness, their own sin, and what God did to deal with it. And they went, oh, man, have you ever felt that? I mean, that's what Christmas, for me, that's what Christmas is about, this picture that God is perfect and holy. He made you and, and he made me and he made us to be in relationship with him and he loves us. Awesome, that's great. But then I look at my own sin and I know what Jesus did and I look at my sin and I go, why? <laughs> why, why? It makes no sense. God is perfect. He did this for me and I do this. That's this word. They were, they were cut to the heart. They were affected by their own sin and God's perfection and what he did to reconcile us back to him. They were pricked to the heart and it led them to ask, what do we do? When God moves, people are broken by the realization of their own sinfulness. We cannot get around that. When God moves, people are broken by the realization of their own sinfulness. 
We live in a day where a lot of times we'll hear the message, just believe, just believe. You don't have to have any life change. You can believe, you can get your fire insurance, then you can go do whatever you want. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. They're cut to the heart and they ask him, what should we do? What should we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. Two things. Listen, when God moves, lives are changed. And here's two ways we're gonna see that lives are changed. When God moves, number one, people get right with God. People begin to get right with God. Let me clarify that. Because when God moves, it's not, when, we, when you were saved, did you become perfect? No, but you began a process of becoming like Jesus. When God moves, repentance happens in the heart. What is repentance? Repentance means very specifically a change of mind. A change of mind. Specifically in context here, it's a change of mind about Jesus. So for them, they, they were shown Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. So they had a change of mind. These people had seen Jesus. Many of them had probably heard Jesus teach. And they listened and went, eh, he's a quack. And they moved on. And then it came to the point where the mob was there. And, and you know some of these saved were in the mob when Jesus was killed and crucified. And now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit moves and they see Jesus anew. They get new eyes for who Jesus is and they're pricked with it and their heart changes. Their mind changes from Jesus is just a guy to Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and my Savior. That's what repentance means, a change of mind. Recognizing sin, recognizing Jesus, and going, okay, no to this now and yes to Jesus. That's what repentance is. It's a turning. And I've heard it said before that, that repentance, you know, the, the idea of turning isn't really in there in that word, but it, it absolutely is. It has to be. A change of mind that, that leads to action. Turning. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a, a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. That's, if you went to Sunday school as a kid, you might have sung that song. Zacchaeus climbed into a sycamore tree. You know, I'll sing the whole thing, but I'm not going to. And he sees Jesus coming because he's short. He climbs up. Uh, he's a sinner. He's a thief. He's a tax collector. He's an IRS agent that takes more than he needs to. And Zacchaeus sees Jesus. Jesus says, come on down. I'm coming to your house today. We're going to have a meal. And he goes. Zacchaeus sees Jesus, has his mind changed about Jesus, and he goes and makes it right. He repents. He says, all the stuff I've stolen, I'm going to give it back and double. His heart is changed. He repents. He repents. He changes. Repentance always accompanies genuine salvation. Listen, this is confrontational in the church. Repentance always accompanies genuine salvation. Here's why this is confrontational. Because the Bible so often, the word it uses most according to salvation or, or with salvation is belief. Believe and be saved. The only prerequisite to salvation is believing. But salvation, whether it's part of believing or it follows, it's always part of it. When, when John the Baptist was baptizing before Jesus entered the scene, he was baptizing them uh, with a spirit of repentance. Recognize your sin and go, I don't want my sin, I want God. Jesus, his first message was, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. When he sent out the disciples, their first message was, repent and believe. Repentance is always part of preaching the gospel. Repentance is necessary in salvation. Again, we can argue about the order. You're saved by belief, but then repentance is part of a heart change of, I don't want my sin, I want you, God. It doesn't make us perfect. That's something we have to get. That's why we begin a process then of becoming more like Jesus in repentance. 
Luke 24 is helpful here. Luke 24, you don't have to turn there, but verses 46 and 47 says this. Jesus, after his rising from the dead, he's sending his disciples out and he says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. By the way, that's part of the gospel that needs to be understood and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Repentance. We don't like that because that, that's confrontational, isn't it? If you're going to go tell your neighbor, hey, you're a sinner, you need to repent. I mean, you picture the person with a signboard, repent, God is coming. You know, that's maybe not the best way to do it, but we have to preach repentance. We're sinners, we need to be saved, and it means a turning, a changing of mind of who Jesus is. And what accompanies repentance? Always. What accompanies repentance? Confession. Confession accompanies repentance. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Repentance leads to confession meaning we're broken, we see God's holiness, we see what Jesus did, we see our sin, our darkness, we're broken by it, we repent, we go, we want to go your way, and we, we, start, we start confessing, telling him the things we've done wrong. Confession is agreeing with God about our sin. So I see, okay, I've been, my pride has been leading me this way, I confess that is not the right way and I want to go your way, and I give it to you, God. Part of this is often confessing to one another. Confessing to a person. Alex and I were talking just before the service about this aspect of confession, about, about giving it up. And as I've been studying revival, confession, repentance and confession is always part of revival. Uh, there was a, a revival, a small one, through some campuses in 1995. And when that happened, what would happen? And it started actually in Christian schools. Christian universities where people thought they were Christians or they thought they were saved and they weren't or they were but they weren't living right and what would happen is they'd have these chapels and all of a sudden the God would move and people would just get up and start going up and repenting of their sins and confessing. They would go to the microphone and start telling the whole school body of their sin. That's part of what happens in revival is God moves, people confess. One girl wrote, I mean, this in 95, it was a small revival but it made it into the newspapers. People saw what was happening. One girl got up one of those perfect girls that, that, you know, maybe all of us have envied. I wish I was just like that. I wish I never sinned. She got up and she had been harboring this sin in her life and she got up and she grabbed the microphone and she confessed her sexual sin to the whole body. And she said she walked away feeling relieved, feeling clean, like a weight had been lifted. And so Alex and I were talking about this before and he said even, even psychology would, would tell, tell us apart from God's word, apart from the Bible, there's something about expressing our sin, the things we've done wrong, and, and having it heard without judgment, that it's a really, we give it over. That's what confession does. So for us, confessing our sin is taking our sin and dragging it into the light, taking what's hidden in the darkness that maybe only you know, you drag it into the light, and then it's dealt with. I can't help, as I think about this picture, to think of vampires. They can only come out at night, but you drag them out into the sun and guess what? They're burned up. But that, that's our sin. It needs to be drugged into the light so God can deal with it. God can kill it, but it needs to be drugged out. Now, confession without turning is not repentance. It's regret. Confession without turning is not repent, re repentance. It's just regret. And we can feel sorry and regret without turning. 
Maybe if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you dealt with that some. You kind of feel it. But as long as you go confess it, you can keep doing whatever you want. Proverbs 28, 13 says this. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. There's a turning. We recognize our sin. We repent. We give it up. We confess it. And then we, we make a commitment to turn. Again, not perfect, but we get a process. Again, you study revival. Repentance is always part of for, repent, Prayer, always part of revival. When God moves, people are praying. When God moves, people repent. This is a big deal in the church, and I'll tell you why, for me. Because in the church, we get really good at these masks, don't we? It gets harder, in my opinion. It gets harder the longer you're a Christian. Because at the beginning, everybody knows you're a sinner. Everybody knows you got a bunch of junk you got to deal with. And so at the beginning, you can confess the sin, but then there comes a point where you better have all that dealt with. And you don't sin anymore. And so now you got to come to church and group and pretend like you've got it on. And so you just put this mask of, as I'm a perfect Christian too. And then we get these, these bodies where we're together and, and God can't do anything with us because we've got this sin that we're hiding and we're not dealing with it. Listen, Spurgeon says this, and I think this is helpful. That true repentance leads a man to love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. You change in the things that you desire. But life with Christ is a continual life of repentance. Here's another area where this can be uh, confusing or even confrontational. I've heard this said often. If you repent when you come to know Christ, you don't have to repent ever again. You're forgiven at salvation and you never have to repent again. That's just unbiblical. Yes, you are forgiven at salvation. Yes, you repent, you turn, you're forgiven. Meaning you've got your fire insurance. Yes, but life isn't just about going to heaven. Life is about life with Christ, fellowship with Christ. God didn't create you just to save you so you could be in heaven. God created you to be in relationship with him. God didn't create you to have a relationship like, like you and a distant uncle. He created you to have a relationship like you and a spouse. Intimate, close, tight. And so what that means is ongoing repentance. Repentance is required for salvation, but it's also required because you're saved. Men, men and women, if you're married and there's something between you and your spouse, at some point you got to deal with it, right? I mean, I guess you can bury it and hide it and it's going to fester and just get worse, but, but how much better just to bring it out and deal with it? It's the same way with God. Repentance is necessary because you're saved. We need to continually live lives of repentance. J.I. Packer, I think, says it well. He says, repentance is turning from as much as you know about your sin and as much as you know about yourself and turning to as much as you know of God. Meaning as you go along this Christian walk, you're gonna learn more about yourself. You're gonna learn more about God. More sin is gonna be revealed to you and you repent of it and you deal with it as God brings those to heart, brings those to mind, you deal with it. That's living a life of repentance. That's living a life of fellowship. So I have to ask, have you repented recently? Have you confessed recently or are you hiding it? Are you wearing a mask and there's something in there festering and God can't deal with you? God can't work through you. Remember, he works through his people, not around. Maybe you need to deal with something so he can work through you. Maybe he's got something awesome. He wants to do through you next week, next month, but you gotta, you gotta get rid of something first. You know what? That's okay. And guess what? I know you've got that because I do too. <laughs> We've got these things. We don't need to pretend. 
James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, good for you. The demons also believe in shudder. James is writing to a people who are saying, we believe and we're saved and now we can do whatever we want. These are Christians James is writing to. These are Christians that are a little bit confused. They're saved, according to what he says earlier in the book. They're saved, but they're confused. And they're saying, you know, we believe, and so now we get to do these things and no big deal. He's like, you believe? Good for you. Kind of pats them on the back. So do the demons. The demons know who Jesus is. When Jesus came walking, it was demon-possessed people that would go, I know who you are, Jesus. And he'd say, shh, shh, shh get out. <laughs> he wouldn't let them talk. The demons know who Jesus is, but they don't live lives of faith. They don't have faith in him. Faith is more than just an intellectual belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Faith includes repentance and turning, that I want to be part of you. That's what it is. This is not about salvation at this point, but this is about fellowship, continually giving your sin up. But he says, you believe God is one, good for you. Demons also believe and shudder. And he goes on in that passage, and he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's talking to Christians, and he calls them sinners. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. God wants you close to him, but you are creating this barrier with your sin that you're continuing. Deal with it. Get rid of it. Later in James, he talks about people being sick because of their sin, and he says, get together and pray for one another that they may be healed. He's talking about sickness caused by sin. Somebody is just stuck in their sin, a believer. This can happen. They need to come to other believers that are strong in their faith and say, pray for me. My faith isn't strong enough to deal with this sin. This is the part of being part of a body. He says, have this other person pray for you. Their faith will help you with your sin. Isn't that neat? But that means we gotta do it. <laughs> that means we gotta do it. If we want God to move, we can't pretend like we're perfect. We have to be honest with our sin. Let him move. The depth of, rev of revival, this is from Bartleman, who was part of a revival in uh, the first part of last century. It says, the depth of any revival will be determined exactly by the spirit of repentance that is obtained. In fact, this is the key to every true revival born of God. Every true revival. So when God moves, the first thing we see there, people get right with God. People get right with God. They deal with their sin. They turn. They give it up. But here's the second thing. When God moves, people begin to get right with one another. He says, repent and be baptized. Being baptized is sim symbol symbolic, symbolic of your new life in Christ. Dying with Christ, buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. And so it, it's showing this new life God has given you, but it's also being baptized into a community, being baptized into his church, which isn't one little local church, meaning the church global. So you don't have to go to another church and get baptized again. Then, you know, you're baptized. You, you're a member of God's church, Jesus's church. And so you're brought into this community. And that's what we see next is their lives were changed. They got right with God. And they began to get right with one another. Remember, 50 days before this, they had watched Jesus being killed. These people didn't like these, this little Christian sect, and now they're becoming Christians. Picture that scene. Some of these might have been there when Jesus was arrested. Some of them might have been there when Peter drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. There are, when Peter did that, and then Jesus healed. I mean, there was animosity here, and now these people are saved. And these people that were against them are coming up going, what do we need to do? And everything changed. Look at the community that they have after this. Acts 2, 41 so those who received his word were baptized 
And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want to point out one thing real quick. They were baptized right away. They didn't have to go through it. They understood the gospel and they repented and they turned. They didn't have to go through a one-year class and learn all the theology and details before they were baptized. You see this biblically? When people believe, they're baptized like that because it's a sign of their repentance and turning and, and, and becoming part of the church. So if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, come talk to me. We need to do that. You need to get baptized. Uh, and we can do that right there. But they're baptized. They're brought in. And then part of this, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so to the word. Again, God, through his spirit, through his word, changes lives. Uh, to teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Breaking of bread, that's the Lord's Supper, communion. And praying. 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So we know there's probably about 10,000 believers, and none of them are in need. Do you get that? 10,000 believers, none of them were in need. Because those who had much were selling and giving to those who had little. They were giving up so they could have less so others could have more. That's a different kind of community. They were living differently. And this was important in this early church because many of these that turned to Christ, they might have lost their jobs. They might have been shunned. Their lives would change. But guess what? There was still no need in this community. People got right with one another. And they had united devotion. Verse 42, they devoted themselves teaching, fellowship, taking the Lord's Supper and praying. They, they were united in their devotion. We saw this earlier when the disciples went up and they prayed together. They prayed with one mind, going in the same direction. They weren't divided by their passions. Like we can often so be divided by our own wants and desires. They weren't divided by that. They were brought together. They had a united devotion. What God was doing was bigger than their differences. I think that's a big deal. What God was doing was bigger than their differences. They had a generosity that was selfless. They had a generosity that was selfless. Go back to James again. I've been talking about James, but James talks about this. He says, you Christians, you come into the church and you walk past a, a brother or sister who's naked and you're like, hey, be warm and be filled. They're naked and hungry, but you, you don't help them. You don't give them any food. You don't give them a jacket. You've got five in your closet. And you don't give them one. It's like, that's not what the church is supposed to be. Things change. Things change, people change, and they had a community that was contagious. That's the end of it. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When God moves, his spirit through his word changes lives. People get right with God. People get right with one another. And as you read through revival, or you've seen any of this, you see people change. People change, and they, they have to. They get right with others. Family members are reconciled when people come to know Christ. They give up these things that they were holding on to, their pride, and they give it up and they come back and, and they're reconciled. That's what happens when God moves. Like I said before, though, it begins with getting right with God. James 4, 8, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Listen, we're, we're seeking God to move. And we know that it begins with prayer. We know that. 
And so last week, we had a week long of praying. And, and this week, here's the next thing, a prayer walk. And I know this sounds intimidating and scary, but it's not. Okay, maybe it is, but do it anyway. But a, a prayer walk. And so there's instructions on here for, for how to do it. And again, you don't have to do it exactly like this, but as a group or as a family, take these instructions and walk your community. If your group all meets in the same community, that's awesome. You know, walk through, split it up, map it out, walk around and pray for God to move. If you know the people in, in the homes, pray for them by name. If you know pain in your community, pray for that pain. Go asking God to move in your community. If your group is maybe like ours and, and we're not, you know, we're doing a Christmas party this week as a group. Uh, and so we won't be able to do it, but we can do it as a family. And our group is different in that we come from different areas. And so we're, we're going to encourage our group. And if you're in our group, I'm encouraging you. <laughs> we're going to do it. Walk around your community and pray. Walk around. And when you do, pray before you go and then go, here's what's going to happen. And here's why, if, if all of us do this, we're going to have some stories because here's what's going to happen. If we actually walk out going, God, will you move? Guess what? He will. He will, which means some of you, not all of you, some of you, when you do this, somebody's going to walk out and go, what are you doing? And you're going to go, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> or, or, or you're going to go, we are praying for the community. We, we want God to move here and we're praying. Is there any way I can pray for you? And guess what? They might go, yeah. In fact, I was just wondering what to do. I read stories of, of prayer walks like this and of a couple, they were walking, they were praying, and then the person came out of their house, and they said, what are you doing? They said, we're praying. How can we pray for you? They said, well, actually, I was just now in my room saying, if God is real, God, show me that you're real. And they look outside, and here's a couple walking down the street looking funny, or I don't know, or somehow it went out. God will move. If we expect him to move, and we go, and we're ready for it, meaning you're ready to share. You're ready to go, we're here praying. How can I pray for you? And then, guess what? We've got these cards. It's really easy. Hey, Christmas Eve, if you're not going anywhere, come with us. We've got these cards on the back. Grab some, grab some, grab some. Do the prayer walk, have some of these ready. Maybe you'll have a chance to invite somebody Christmas Eve. It's gonna be neat and we're praying for God to move and then continue to pray that God will move Christmas Eve. But as we wrap up today, we're gonna sing a couple more songs. The lights are gonna dim, but we are gonna have an opportunity for us to get right with God. If the Holy Spirit's been pricking your heart during this, guess what? Don't ignore him. Do not ignore the Spirit. We can. The Bible calls it quenching the Spirit. He can be moving in you and you can go, mm, I'm too worried about my image. I'm too wor worried about what people are gonna see. Or, or Get over that. Get over it. Let God move in you. And here's how we can do it. We're not doing communion today, but up here we have baskets and there's pieces of paper next to the baskets. Come up, write down whatever it is you wanna confess before God. Fold that in half, put it in the basket. If you want somebody to contact you, just write your phone number on there. Write your name and your phone number and somebody will call you and you can actually talk to somebody. But if you wanna just do it symbolically, you and God, write it down, give it to God, put it in there. And then we have a, a bucket too, symbolically we can wash our hands. It's just a symbol of repentance. There's something about action and that's something where God has been working on, on me and as us at a church, at this church, is there's something about moving in there rather than just spectator church moving and doing it. So this is very symbolic of just, this doesn't save you. <laughs> this, this doesn't fix you, but this is symbolic of what you're doing in your heart. I'm repenting. And maybe you have something specific in your mind, write it down. Then just dip your hands 
symbolically washing your hands. Going, I'm giving this to God, and I'm accepting your righteousness, Jesus, yours. Uh, there's paper towels and dry them off. If you want to pray with somebody, Alex and Kelsey are right up here, and they'll be ready to pray with you. You can, you can talk to them. You can ask for prayer, whatever you want to do. We have this front corner that we've started to use. If you want to go up and get on your knees, you know, there's something about repent, getting on your knees. That's a spot where you can do it. Go up there, get on your knees. You can sit where you're at. You can do whatever you want. But now's the time to do that. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, um, the thing about your word that sometimes is scary is you, you, uh, you create change. Um, when you move, things change. When you move, we change. And I sure don't like when I'm faced with my own sin. And I sure don't like when other people know about my sin. But yet, that's not your way. I know that I'm not perfect. I know nobody in here is perfect. Only you are, Jesus Christ. And your righteousness, we know, is laid over us because of what you did on the cross. If we, by faith, receive you, now we know that the Father looks at us and sees you, Jesus, sees your white, clean list rather than our black and dirty list. And we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, I ask, I beg you to move. Move this morning in this church. Move Right here in this room, God, I pray that we would confess the things we need to confess, that we would give them to you and give them up and commit to turn. God, in, in Proverbs, you say that he who confesses and forsakes his sin will receive compassion. We need your mercy. We need your compassion. We want to be close to you. And so move in us and then move through us. Move in us, then through us to the community, to our neighbors, to our family to this city and let us see revival, please. Let us see many come to you. Lives really changed, not just on the surface, but at the core. Let us see lives changed. Most of all, all of this is for your glory. Jesus, we ask that you would be glorified. We sing these songs of praise to you, Jesus, this Christmas season that you came to be born as a man. You came to die to take our sins. Now, all glory is yours. All we can do is respond by adoring you, by giving ourselves fully to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.